Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you've come via YouTube and want to know more about what we do, it's easy. Just head over to officehours.global. That is our primary web portal for more information and links about the show. Uh, note, you can use the QR code, which you will see in the bottom of here in a minute uh, throughout the show. There it is. And you can just type in that askofficehours.com. If you have a quick question you want to toss into the show, that's the kind of easiest. It's not quite as direct as using the Mukana interface, which allows you to vote on questions and also kind of more interact with the crowd who's watching the show in real time. But if you'd like to just pop in a good question, it's easy to do. Use that officehours.com QR code or direct link and you'll be right there. Today in our second hour, we're talking about interviews. It's been a popular subject on the show since we started talking about uh, everything having to do with the production arts, not how to interview on someone today. We've talked about that in the past with the kind of thing about preparing questions and so forth. But, But today we're talking more about the structure of an interview. How do you successfully shoot interviews? We'll talk about room setup, lighting, sound, and more. Just things you can tweak to get better results. So that'll be an open discussion in our second hour, but it is time for our first hour. So Alex, what's our first question today? Thanks, Bill. The first question is from Daniel Goldstein in Baltimore, Maryland. And Daniel asks, Alex Lindsay, oh, that's me. <laughs> he said, a while ago, you said that you used many Zoom one-to-one meetings for virtual events. So to have total control over the return audio for comms purposes, do you still ever do that? Why or why not? Yeah. So what he's talking about is that we've talked in the past about the fact that, um, uh, what we do and what we still do to some, and for some events is that we have each person go into their own Zoom room. We then bring them into the to the show, and then we and then we make a show out of that. The reason we do that is so that we can have comms going back to them without them having to have a separate audio feed return. Uh, we still do that because Zoom does not still doesn't let us send returns back to each individual person. That's a pretty complicated audio problem within their stack. And so, um, so the, so we're still doing that a little bit, although we have, you know, many of our shows we've moved to zoom ISO. And I think that we will probably by the end of the year be completely just using the zoom ISO process and then working with the key people that we need to talk to. We, 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 what we learned is that we don't need to talk to everybody. <laughs> so we, we need to talk to the host, sometimes one or two other people. Um, and so in those, in those respects, what we've learned is that we could just um, work with them to put Unity comms or something else on their, on their desktop so that they can hear us. And so it's a little extra work on our end, but it really reduces the latency. The problem really with doing what we do now is that it doubles the latency because it goes to the server twice. So we're kind of moving away from that. We really hope that Zoom can figure out a way to give us return audio um, to every in, in individual from the server, but haven't seen that yet. So hopefully we'll, that'll uh, show up somewhere in the near future. Thank you, Daniel Goldstein, for what became uh, one of our top-rated questions for today. There are others to come, including this next one. Next question is from Eric Hertz in Hartford, Connecticut. And Eric asks, uh, what device can capture 4K at 10-bit, YUV2 or XRGB, and not NV12, uh, and send this to USB? My current devices are forcing me to choose between 4K and 10-bit or apply undesirable H.264 encoding. Uh, the, the best way to do this uh, is to uh, most likely use something like a Declan card. So a Declan card will just be internal to you. Um, you can also look at the Ultra Studio line. And, um, you know, those are, those are all um, possibilities as well, but those are, the, those are your options um, that I would look at. So a Sonnet box into a Mac or a Sonnet box or, or just a Declan card into your PC, uh, and that's going to allow you to bring in 10-bit directly. 
Eric, I hope that took care of your question. We are ready to move on to the next one. Next question is from Ian Alford in London, and Ian asks, what is the low-budget short film idea you always wanted to make but never got around to doing? And Jeffrey Powers has one this morning. Jeffrey. Well, it wasn't a low-budget short film. It actually was a full idea. Uh, a little backstory. Back in uh, back in 2014, you know, he had Blip.TV, which was the alternative to YouTube, which actually made made some of his creators money before YouTube started to put in the uh, put in the monetization stuff. It was bought out by Maker TV, which was a Disney property. Well, in 2014, they were, they were throwing a whole bunch of opportunities at us, which was great. And one of the opportunities was they gave us a small, small little amount of money, and then we would go and we'd create pilots for a TV show. So I developed a show called Geeks Across America, and it was kind of like uh, one of these reality shows like American Pickers where you'd go to site and you'd see somebody's collection of geekery. And it didn't matter what, you know, if tech geekery, if they were surgical geekery, whatever. And the idea was that we would then, we'd go there because I got this idea when I was at South by Southwest and I met somebody who was a real Lego geek and he goes, well, you know, I'm not as much of a geek as this guy. And I, was, I thought, well, if we looked at his stuff and then went down the road and then looked at the other person's stuff. This would be a fun little uh, project. So I created this pilot, which uh, uh, submitted to the show. And then at that time, the whole debacle with the uh, with uh, PewDiePie happened and then Maker TV went in a completely different direction. My pilot never really happened, but I had, you know, I put everything together for that, you know, website and socials and all that stuff ready to go for if this was actually going to become a show. And it would have been a YouTube uh, version of a discovery style show. Um, so I really wish that that would have actually taken off to something. I would have had a lot of fun with it, but uh, I still think about that every now and then and, and how I could actually uh, put that together. So that would be my thing. Now, like I said, not a short film, but uh, definitely something. I always had one. Okay, so I'm going to toss out this idea. I've kept it in my back pocket because I'll never be able to find the time to make it. But I had one that was kind of a little riff on the gift of the Magi, the O. Henry short story. I don't know if you remember that, but she cuts her hair and he buys her a comb. They're both desperately poor, but they're expressing their love for each other. In my version, um, the guy is walking past something. He wants to take his wife finally out to a decent restaurant after both of them being mired in poverty as a young couple for a long time. So he's walking past a pawn shop window and he sees a tuxedo. And so he thinks, I can scrape enough. And he goes in and he works really hard, negotiates it, and he buys a tuxedo. He said, I'm going to really dress up and take my wife out for this fabulous dinner, the first time she's been able to do something other than just live her difficult existence. So... They he they all get together and they go to the restaurant and people start looking at them very oddly. They check in at the front desk and he gets an odd look and this continues until you eventually get inside and you find out that the tuxedo he bought is the exact same one all the waiters are wearing. I just thought it would make a cute little short film. His love for her goes entirely wrong and hijinks ensue. So that's my small short film movie that I always wanted to make and never had time to make. You know, we, we, we had uh, um, for a while, 
Pixelcore when we went to shows, I told everyone they had to wear black suits, you know, so that we would, you know, just really bring it up because we were in corporate. But then everyone, and then we even got little name tags just to really to make sure that everyone, like, you know, it was a little bit more official. We were trying to play a little harder, and everyone thought we worked at the hotel. They kept on asking us for directions to the restrooms, and, you know, like it was just, it was, we were like, okay, never mind. <laughs> It'd be fun to do. Sorry, I never got around to doing that one. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Douglas Carmichael. And Douglas asks, let's say a brand is producing advertising content for the sphere. Would most corporate marketing departments or ad agencies be able to produce content at the resolution to make use of the sphere? How would they deliver and serve content securely? Alex is going to start us off then. Chris is going to take Most it. agencies would not try to do this themselves. Um, most likely there'll be an in-house uh, partner inside the sphere. I don't know exactly how this works, but I'm going to guess that that it, there's an in-house partner at the sphere that's going to give them specs and work with them and talk to them about what's possible and what's not possible and what the resolution is and work with them. And then they're going to work with a most likely a trusted agency that already works with the sphere. So the sphere is going to say, these are the three or four people. The agency for the company will interface with a technical agency that, it, that a technical production company that already knows how to use the sphere. So it's not really, uh, so it's not going to be a new person every single time trying to build something for the sphere. It'll be one, two, or three different production companies that are available to them um, to get this done. For instance, when we did work for some of our corporate clients that had a platform, we were that. <laughs> you know, like the the agency would work with us, and we would tell them what's possible, not possible. Tell them how to make it better, how to make it. You know, all those things. Um, we would work with them on it, and we would take their ideas. And a lot of them were great, and we'd figure out how to boil them into something that worked on the platform. So I think that that's most likely how how this actually works. Chris Fenwick. Yeah, I would. I think this question falls apart, Douglas, with the word most because that's a big number. Um, totally agree. I, I will say that it. I, I'm totally curious as to how this would happen. Um, I think it's way out of the realm of anything I've ever done, although the resolution itself doesn't bother me. Um, it's just a Mercator projection. Not, what's that? It's just a Mercator projection. Like, I mean, we've done. Just. I don't yeah, allow I've done, that word. I've done a lot of Mercator projections. Okay, I don't allow. I literally, I have turned to talk to producers sitting behind me, and I say, "You cannot use the word just in this room. We never <laughs> use that. We never, <laughs> like, never just. ever do you get to use the word just mm. in an edit suite because nothing mm. is just. One little change breaks twenty things. But um, yeah, I don't know how that works. Yeah, the the resolution doesn't bother me. Yeah, the, the what what you do is that you have to to wrap a um, a to to wrap something that's rectilinear onto a sphere. What you need to do is you build it in 360, and then you do what's called a Mercator projection, so that you'll see the top and bottom. It's it basically stretches everything all the cube out. Um, to it's it, you know, it's, and and oftentimes we do use. I mean, I don't know how they're rendering it, but we would render six sides of a cube, and then we'd run it through a Mercator projection. So you have. You have uh, six cameras that are at 90, 90 degree um, field of view, and then you have them all in that in the space that you're creating there. And there's a lot of different ways to manage that, but then you run it through a Mercator projection, and it'll open it up, and it'll all look, you know, distorted at the top and the bottom. But when it wraps back onto the sphere, um, and in the simplest way that you can see that is in um, there is a uh, what is it? Um, uh, there's a there's an old, very very old plugin inside of Photoshop, like one of the original plugins inside of Photoshop that was, I think it was, um, 
uh, I don't know, spherical to linear or something like that, that, that basically that was there so that John Knoll could paint the pinches out of the top of reflection maps <laughs> so in Photoshop. So, so he just, you know, that, that it's just, a, it's a, it's a transform, but, um, but typically that's, that's how you would do that. And we, you know, for when we do 360, we do that all the time. Like, the, I mean, 360 is a thing that we, when we do 360 video, we have to figure out how are we going to map, uh, unwrap that so that we can, um, so that we can edit it. Nice. Uh, Jeffrey Powers, you wanted to get in on this. Yeah, uh, with my 360 video, it, it, whenever I try to put like a lower third or something like that on, it's always curved. I, I can never get that done right. So I totally understand that. It's definitely uh, something that if you're looking for a new job and looking for a new skill set, uh, you can go from there. And the other thing you have to worry about is how where uh, points of map. Uh, so where, like for instance, I just saw a video Apparently, it overlooks the golf course, uh, the wind golf course. And when you're on a specific hole, you're looking directly at the sphere. And they have this little graphic where it's like a little uh, little face that, that's moving around. And all of a sudden, when uh, it, it points to you, when you hit the ball, it's like looking at the ball as it goes up and looking at the ball as it goes down. I wouldn't want to, you know, that's that's something that would be very specific for that, that item. And if there was another sphere somewhere in the world, I betcha the two spheres would never work the same. So it's best to have somebody in-house doing all that work, and they probably have somebody doing that. Chris wants to pop back in. Chris? Yeah, I was going to say the Mercator projection thing, Alex. There is a great old episode of The West Wing where somebody comes in and tries, and they show how, because of Mercator projection, how the maps of the world are completely inaccurate, and it's a a really fun scene. Yeah, there's a uh, when you go to Africa, there are maps in the uh, <laughs> when you go to Africa, there are maps that show you the corrected version of of what that actually looks like. And you know, Africa is much larger than it. Than, that's why in Africa they all show the, the corrected map. Africa looks much longer, but it also is much larger than than what you see on the yeah. On Greenland is really small, and yeah, yeah. very interesting. I did not wake up this morning thinking I would enjoy that much of a discussion of map projections. But see, that's office hours. We can have fun with any subject. Let's move on to the next question. Next question is from Alexander Knight in uh, a port Coquitlam, uh, British Columbia, Canada. And uh, Alex asks, uh, has anyone been able to get 1080p and Zoom from a Melee Quieter 3 PC? I moved my Zoom setup uh, to that computer and went, um, went in into after hours i checked the statistic page on the client and it said i was sending 720p oh that's disappointing uh, alex can you help him out i uh, can't it, it won't work <laughs> like, so zoom has a zoom needs a certain number of cores i think it's four um that are in there that these little uh, quieter for people watching i think i have one this is this is what he's talking about here this is the quieter um pc and it's a tiny little tiny little pc here and um, this is uh, this this doesn't have the number the prequisite hardware supplied to um, supply 1080p and Zoom does a check and it's just mostly because it it probably could handle it but there's a lot of PCs that that you know they had to cut it off somewhere to make sure that it was actually going to work um, and so yeah it doesn't doesn't work. Serge, did you have a follow up? Yeah, just as Alex said, it's a it's a seller on four core, but. At the Zoom website, they say i7. So I'm pretty sure they, if they check, if the software check for that CPU, it will say, I will not try right. it. And remember, fanless will mean that every time the, the, the temp will go higher, the CPU will go slower to manage the temperature of the CPU. 
Oh, sorry, uh, Alexander, but this is one of those, maybe you can't get there from here. Alex, you had a follow-up? Yeah, and I think that people, you know, they, they get into an upset about, like, why it, it probably could handle it. Why doesn't Zoom just make it let you go ahead and give it a shot? And it mostly comes down to customer support. Uh, what you do is you, you start increasing the number of tickets that people call because they get something that's underpowered. And now they're going to call customer support and say, why is my frame my frames dropping? Why isn't this working? Why isn't? So by setting the, the um, bar to something that's safe for a company, and I don't know what the cost is for Zoom. I can tell you for other companies, the kind of going rate is it costs about $15 a call to them, you know, so if they get a, you know, something's going to generate a thousand calls, they're looking at how much that, how much that costs them to just, instead of just moving the bar and saying that doesn't work. <laughs> so, so, you know, so that, you know, the, um, because otherwise they're sitting there fiddling with it. Um, and that, that number may be much higher now. It's, that was a, it's a pretty old number before pre-inflation uh, numbers. So it could be more $20, $25 a call. Um, and so that's the real, uh, that's the real issue is that they, it's called deflection um, in, in the end, because they just don't want to, uh, if, if you deal with edge cases, you're going to end up with a lot more support tickets, and that costs money to support. And uh, it's easier just to move it up a little bit and tell people to get a bigger, bigger computer. There you go. Let's move on to the next question. Uh, next question is from the QR drop, and this is uh, from Chester Sweeney in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. And Chester asks, I have an AIFF file. And will Compressor or Apple Logic convert this to Wave or FLAC uh, to put it onto Spotify? Alex? I don't know about FLAC, um, uh, but I do know that it will convert it to Wave. So you should be able to convert that to Wave um, inside of uh, uh, Compressor. Uh, I wouldn't, I don't. I don't do a lot of compressed outputs from uh, Logic. Logic should be able to do it as well. I just haven't ever tried to do a wave output from there, but I have done it from from Compressor. Yeah, I do things to wave all the time, but I, I my answer would have been exactly like Alex's. Flack is a little bit different. It is one of those weird, uncompressed kind of uh, audio file formats, and I'm not sure whether it supports it. Jeffrey, do you know? Yeah, Spotify does uh, support Flack, and uh, so converting it to Flack will work. Okay, there you go. Let's move to the next question. Next question is from uh, Chip Krilowitz in Haddonfield, New Jersey. And Chip, uh, uh, Chip asks, Alex mentioned that he, uh, and this is also from the QR code, by the way. Alex mentioned that, um, that he mentioned uh, that he avoided taking his camera out um, on a photo shoot because it was not GPS enabled. Uh, all you have to do is run a GPS tracking app on your phone while taking pictures to send the tracking log to Lightroom Maps. Even though you called out uh, Alex in this specifically, Chris Fenwick raised his hand first. I so object, Chris. Chip. Uh, please submit your uh, submissions <laughs> in the form of a question. This is this is clearly a question and answer period. So please. Play by the rules. No, I'll let Alex explain. Bit too I, declaratory. I, it's a lot of extra work. <laughs> by the way, I would say. By the way, I would encourage people if people want to put in comments or corrections or other things like that. I actually encourage you to do that with the, with the Q and A system, uh, because uh, it's impossible for us to kind of keep track of of your chat. So if you want to put something in chat, that's fine. That's among the among the producers watching. That's that kind of their inside baseball. Uh, for the panelists, it's easier for us if you just put it, if you want to put a comment in or you want us to address something, putting it into uh, in, in, into the uh, questions is, is great, <laughs> even through the QR code. So, so yeah, do, do, as far as um, GPS, you're absolutely right that you can have, there's a variety of ways of, of using your phone as another way to track that data and then tie it back to the phone. 
um, tie it back to the, the cameras. It's just too much work. <laughs> so for me, like, it's just, you know, like, I know that I know that that's that that sounds like a lazy answer, but I shoot a lot of photos. I'm in a lot of places. And it's not if I'm going out for professional photo shoot, I'm still taking a professional camera. But when I'm out shooting, I just don't shoot. Like, so when you say a shoot, I'm not take, going to a a photo shoot with a client with my iPhone. I'm going with a variety of different. And usually it's some kind of video camera, but it might be a still camera. And it's a big camera with expensive lenses and that's, you know, and, and it beyond the quality of the image, I just don't want to explain why I'm using an iPhone. So, um, so the, uh, the, uh, but what I'm talking about is I used to carry a phone. I mean, I used to carry a camera everywhere. I used to have a, a DSLR everywhere. And I just stopped doing that because I can't find the pictures, you know, and it's just too much trouble for me to think about what that would look like and making sure that the cameras work and everything else. And I just decided I'd rather just have phone. I have so many records of all the places I've been all over the world and I can find them in an instant um, because I shot them with my iPhone and not with a DSLR. Serge, you want to pop in on this? I just, for my personal experience, I went to a trip to Scotland a few weeks ago. I, I bring my iPhone and my DSLR. I was traveling with my DSLR and never use it because the iPhone is so easy to use, so easy to manage afterwards. I I don't even know why I have a DSLR anymore. Just I use it as a webcam now. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting. Uh, one of the first things that I did when I got one of the first iPhones that I thought really did take good pictures was I worked on uh, where am I? Which pocket am I going to keep my iPhone in? And can I reach in, grab it, and get from zero to shooting inside four seconds? I drilled myself on that. And I can't tell you how many times just having the camera in your pocket available to be able to pull it out has managed to, to let me grab a shot that I otherwise would have missed and certainly would have missed with a DSLR in terms of taking it out of the case, set it up, kind of get focused and get all the rest of that done. Uh, these are amazing tools to have sitting in our pocket. And so this time you spend learning to use them efficiently. Sir, do you have another follow-up real quick before I make the announcement? Just for a while, you uh, saying that to have a quick way to use my iPhone as a camera, I use the new iPhone 15, and the action button is perfect for that. Yeah, and it's just knowing how to to hold it, feel where the button is, you find your your stable place, and execute either recording video or shooting stills as quick as you can. There's just so many circumstances where that has saved a shot for me because something was passing by and I said, okay, I'm going to do it. And there we go. And I got the passing thing rather than having it off frame before I actually got the camera ready to shoot. Chris, you have a last yes, comment? Yes, Serge, were you using the action button to trigger the, the photo? Yes. Did you know that the volume buttons, both of them, will also trigger the photo? Yeah, I know that. But okay. the... What I find nice with the action button is I can use it to open the camera, use it to take uh, a, a picture, and if I keep it down, it will do a video. Oh, so cool. the same, yeah. There you so go. I also so. saw that there was an update. There's a, I think in the beta, there's an update that now they have to have a, I think it's, I think they call it pocket, pocket sensor or pocket mode because the action button was accidentally getting pressed in people's pockets. Oops. 
Interesting. Well, they continue to evolve. So very good camera to have in your pocket. Uh, for those of you who are interested in adding to the question queue, it's an always a good idea. You'll see the, the QR code up on the screen now if you want to do it quickly. Or you can go through the standard Mukana system if you'd like and put your questions in there. Plus, we always encourage you to vote on the questions you find most interesting and engaging. The higher the number of votes that a question gets, the quicker we usually get to it and the more depth we... Uh, put into discussing it. At least that is typical. We want to know what you want to hear about, and that is the mechanism in the show that we use to allow you to determine order and time of discussion. So uh, that's available for you. We encourage you to use it. And let's go to the next question. Next question is from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. And Paul asks, uh, is there a pair of glasses or goggles uh, that you that uh, will show your Mac Mini M1 Mini uh, or iPhone screen comfortably? Well, Jeffrey, start us out. Google Glass does it. No. Uh, so basically, uh, <laughs> there is no way that I've seen, but there is a workaround. And the workaround would be because uh, you can you can. On a MetaQuest, you can actually hook you hook it up to your uh, PC, and you can set up so you can see the screen from the PC inside a MetaQuest. So if you get a program like VNC, you can use VNC to go over to your Mac Mini. Uh, I'm not sure about the iPhone, but I bet uh, the, you know there's other things like Reflector that that allow you to. NDI will let you do it, and then you can uh, bring that uh, that screen over, and then you can work on your Mac M1 or your iPhone from there. One of the wags in the back end put in the comment, reading glasses. I resemble that remark. Uh, Alex. Yeah, the um, um, I just ordered and it arrived this morning. I didn't get it. I didn't have time to get it out and try it yet. Um, the X-Real Air AR glasses. These are the ones that Guy was talking about a day or two ago on the show. And I went ahead and ordered, ordered a pair. <laughs> so we're going to take a look at them and see how they work. But these should give you a 1080p from an HDMI signal um, in front of you. They're, they're glasses. They're there. And so um, we're going to see how they work. And uh, so if you ask probably as early as tomorrow, I will know or I'll have an opinion. Guy seems to like them a lot. So based on Guy's recommendation, which I trust, um, uh, I, uh, I, I, I went ahead and bought some. Um, unlike Chris's. Chris, Chris is crazy. <laughs> yeah, I was just waiting to say this. <laughs> and Guy got the thirty or the twenty three percent off, and then they dropped to eleven percent. I only so got a lot of people. Off, yeah, so I, people I, I must got, have taken. You know, I lost. I lost thirty it. bucks there. So um, <laughs> anyway, so the um, uh, so based on Guy's recommendation, I, I tried them out. We'll try. We'll talk about them tomorrow or on Saturday. Cool. We had another quick review coming up, Serge. You get. 11% off, and Canada didn't get anything off, so. Oh, <laughs> you just had to pay retail in Canada? Well, you yeah, paid in Canadian dollars. Not, Is that plus or minus? I don't <laughs> anyway. It was 600-something Canadians for me. Canadian so. dollars. Ouch. Okay. Whoa. Oh, man. That's a lot. It well, was 367 with shipping here. It's guy fault. I, I, he was I pretty hot on them. He, he thinks they're it. a really good purchase. So yeah. uh, let's hope that they're everything they, they promise to be. We'll, we'll find out more tomorrow when Alex reports back in. Let's sl slip to the next question. Next question is from David Brady in New York, New York. And uh, David asks, getting to, uh, um, getting to up the game a little and curious on the differences between the ATEM Constellation television studio and production studio families of products. Uh, is there a feature table somewhere? 
Oh, feature tables are always nice to be able to compare one against the other. Alex, what say you? We should really post one. I don't actually know all the different things that are between the t- between all of these different pieces there. There are a couple groups of them. There are the old ones that they're still selling that are gray or tan or something like that. I wouldn't get any of those. Like they're, you know, they they have a lot. They're very modal and so on and so forth. But they've got a couple of them still, I think, floating in the system. The um, Then they have uh, a series, which I think are the production studios, which are all in one where you have the control and then you have all the IP, all the, all the, not the IP, but all the inputs on the back. Um, and that to me seems like an insane experience, like, you know, to, to move things around and have all that GAC in the back of it. I think that if you put it in a rack and you pulled it out, even though you're pulling all, at all those cables, maybe that would make sense to have it be there. Um, uh, then I, I believe that the Constellation and, and a lot of the other ones that are there that are all in one box. So the Constellations, I think, are the ones that you have, they're expecting you to control it from a second unit. So they're, it's a one, it's a, it's a three U or, or two U or five U or whatever they decide that those things are going to be. I think our constellation is a two or three U. Um, and uh, the other thing is the larger constellations have a lot of IO, 40 in, 24 out. That's what the, the 8K version has. And I think the 4K version has the same thing. So, so you have a lot of IO, you are going to control it separately uh, with either software or with a with a controller board, and that can, that can come from Blackmagic or it can come from Scarhoy or you know or Mix Effect Pro. So those are a bunch of different options of ways to control those. Um, the things you want to look at is yeah, do you want the cables to be all attached to it? And for us using minis, we're used to that, but it is a bit of a mess. I would love to not have that with my mini. Um, yeah, do you do you want super sources? And so, um, being able to have you know the the constellations have up to two super sources. I I think that there may be only one super source with some of the smaller ones. Um, so uh, that you do have the processing for that. Um, those are those are big big pieces of it. And then with the newer ones, you have more Ethernet I/O if you want to start connecting Ethernet cameras to them. Um, but those one, I don't think there's any of the I don't know if there's any of the standalones that do that. Um, anyway, so those are some of the things that you want to kind of think about. Are do you want IP connections? What level of super sources do you want? How much I/O do you need? Um, and obviously, what resolution that you want? I think those are the things that really make the make a lot of these. And then the final thing is the constellations. I believe all have a much larger buffer to hold on to video. So if you're doing sweepers and lower thirds or any kind of th- something you want to kind of move along, I think that the constellations all have larger buffers than the smaller switchers. Is anybody else other than me very, very, very minorly annoyed by feature tables that start out with 32 listings that everything is always the same, you know, check, 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 and you get down and it's only on like column or row 900 that you see, okay, there's the differences. Yeah, but it's I, different I, every time. You know, yeah, the, the, I, I, I want I the differences at the top. I do Tell think me. a feature table would be, would be useful. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Maybe we'll create one. Well, I'm just hoping they put the differences at the top and not bury them down 700 rows below where I'm trying to find the info. Anyway, like I said, very minor annoyances in life. Let's get to the next question. Uh, whoops. Uh, next question is from Alexander Knight in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada. And Alex asks, what's the difference between a Zoom webinar and a meeting? Those terms seem interchangeable. What's the difference between a Zoom room and a meeting? Uh, meetings uh, can have breakout rooms. So I find this confusing. I don't think you're the only one out there. Alex, help everybody in the audience who has happens. trouble with this. <laughs> this is what happens over many years when people make many different requests and things get forked and then renamed and then moved around. And, you know, there's that's the I mean, eventually, you know, Zoom will have Zoom one 
which will be a whole new build and it'll be completely and it won't it'll just do everything all at one time I, I think that that's where they need to go is to just reimagine this as a, a completely different product and then incorporate all the features and you just turn them on and off but that's not what's there right now so really what happened was is that i mean i don't know all the history but my understanding of what happened is that you have zoom and you have all these zoom meetings and then people say they want to have they want to be able to control it so it's really more like a show like a lot of people watching so then they created they fork that and make it uh zoom webinar and so webinar has its own you know it's basically its own code base as it starts to build away from those and then people in meetings say we really would like to have breakouts and so they put breakouts into the meetings but not into the webinar um and um and so and then but people in webinars because they don't have because they can't show they want to ask questions so then you have questions in the webinars and not in the meetings <laughs> and so so that you know they're all they're, they're taking care of their own bits now i think that they are slowly putting all of those back together so i think you should have a lot of the same features the the breakouts and the questions and everything else appear in both of these the webinar is still really designed as a bunch of people are watching and someone's actually talking while the meetings are designed as a more collaborative thing a whole bunch of people are in there and they can turn their videos on and off and and everything else we use a meeting we used to use webinar for this show um, and then we um, and then we moved to um, meetings because we're now using zoom iso to basically deliver it to a switching system so so it, it you know webinar didn't make as much sense for that so it, it those there's also some you know some subtle registration changes between the two i mean there's a lot of differences i won't get into all of them this morning um as far as breakout rooms and uh, meetings have i believe the breakout rooms are, are now available in in uh, webinar i have to admit we have not used webinar since we moved from uh since we moved away from webinar for the show we haven't really had a need to use it because within our own productions we just use zoom meetings and iso and we don't pay attention to the other pieces because we're streaming it into something else um and so the um uh as far as zoom rooms and and breakout rooms that's it is get a little confusing zoom rooms are designed almost as an appliance they're designed to work in a room so you have a zoom room is is your conference room or something else it may have a couple cameras it may be able to, you know, and and we use those for a lot of other things in the cloud and in in other situations. But the um, but the but they're designed really. They were designed as an appliance, and they're they're also kind of this in between, so that PCs and the cloud can do some of the things that Zoom ISO can do. Um, and so those are the the, Zoom, the breakout rooms are really there as a breakout from your main event. So and now we use those as ways to manage talent and manage people um but the uh, but the the idea was you're gonna have a big meeting they're gonna break everybody out into their breakout rooms um so they can have individual meetings and they all come back to the main meeting um and it kind of works <laughs> so for that it works really really well for managing talent <laughs> so, so so it's um and so that's that's how we use it primarily interesting okay i was i've always been a little fuzzy on that too because i don't run these i, I participate in them all the time so good to know thank you for that explanation and let's move to the next question next question is from douglas carmichael and douglas asks how would the x-real glasses compare to the MetaQuest uh, for immersive consumption of media content I think these could be game-changing for those on the autism spectrum reducing anxiety during medical procedures um, Oh, an interesting thing. I've, uh, yeah, every, the last couple of times I've gone in for any kind, I had a couple of CAT scans at one point, and, and they put you in there. They always ask you if you want music or something like that, just to give you a little bit of extra relaxation since you're going to be stuck inside a tube for a half an hour or whatever. Alex, what do you say? 
Uh, yeah. So the, the the MetaQuest is a platform. I mean, it is a place that you build content for it. There's a lot of interactive pieces that are part of this. I believe that the X-Real glasses, and I just got some, so we'll test it. Uh, the X-Real glasses uh, are really more of an HDMI output to your to your glasses. So whatever's on the other side of it, um, whether it's a, a, a video player or a computer or anything else that you have there is going to play into that that actually may be enough. You know, that may be the right thing for for folks is just have an HDMI input and now you can design it all. The advantage of that is that you don't have to de- develop for the MetaQuest platform to get that content into into your eye, into their, the downside is you don't have anything to develop for that's specific for those headsets. They're just, I believe that they're just HDMI outputs. They're not a platform to develop for. One thing that I don't know is whether you can deliver stereo content to it yet or, or other things like that. So that's something that we're going to, um, that's, those are the kind of things I want to experiment with um, as, as, as we open the box. Jeffrey. Yeah, and uh, when it comes to MetaQuest, uh, that's, that's a totally immersive item. And, and in fact, I have uh, uh, Sarah Hill, who's a friend of mine, uh, and she, she's working with veterans uh, to uh, try and get them to places like uh, uh, Places like uh, uh, when somebody passes, they have funeral. Uh, they can they can kind of experience that through there. There's also been a lot of studies about PTSD and using VR to help with the PTSD uh, because of the fact that it's totally immersive. You turn your head left or you turn your head right, you get the you you see what's on the left or the right. Whereas these glasses would be, you'd have a screen right in front of you, and if you go left or right, that's still that screen right in front of you. I'm not going to say that it's not going to work because there haven't been any studies on it, but it uh, it definitely will most likely give somebody some sort of peace of mind. As for Bill saying, putting it in a CAT scan, it, that probably would never happen because you can't have anything like that in a CAT scan and then have the CAT scan actually work properly. No, you don't want the magnets in there firing when you're wearing a big piece of metal on your face. That would be a generically bad idea. So let's sneak to the next question. Next question is from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. And Paul asks, Automatic expands ActivityPub support to WordPress.com hosted sites, letting blog owners reach 13.3 million users across the Fediverse, including Mastodon's 1.8 million monthly active users. What does this mean? Is Mastodon slash Fediverse gaining traction? Jeffrey, start us off. Yeah, a little bit of backstory on this. This is all a part about decentralization of social networks. And so basically what would happen, uh, and Threads have talked about decentralization. Mastodon, of course, is uh, doing decentralization. And it's all countering what uh, what Elon's doing with X and then raising the rates on the API. WordPress back in May basically said, we're not, we're not going to be paying those APIs uh, for you to post your stuff. And they took everything out. Jetpack completely removed... Uh, any type of connection to Twitter. So you'd need a third-party plugin to actually do the uh, do the social plugin like you would. But they, Jetpack was early in the game on that also with Mastodon. So they already have a option to connect your Mastodon account, which is great. Uh, so basically what happens is you're still the wherever you post the information is where you are is where it is and then it's just kind of linked over on your other accounts uh so far it from what i've seen on the results it's okay but i can also see a lot of people really abusing that option you have a lot of junk coming through so if they can work that information out uh so i don't get a whole bunch of spam posts uh, then i'm all for it 
Alex. Uh, I'm sure it's a, it's a progression in that process. The real problem is, is that social media is, you know, nothing ever goes away. So people are always going to say, well, social media is dead or, or social media is going away or anything else. Radio is still around and print is still around and theater is still around. And there, you know, these are all things that maybe aren't as big as they were when they, when they were getting started, but they are still very vital and very something people are part of. Their models have changed. um, And they, and, and what they've done has changed. TV is still around. Social media will be still around for quite some time. Um, That said, there's probably something else coming. Is this it? Probably not. (laughs) The bridge technologies almost never end up being the next thing. So when people, when some, when people realize they're no longer happy with what they have, a bunch of things crop up and they become, you know, it's like, it's like a little open field. There's a gap, there's a little open field and a whole bunch of little things grow up into it. And I think that Mastodon is part of this process um, in the quote unquote betaverse. And they'll talk like they're going to grow into a big tree, but the chances of them growing into a big tree are almost zero. It doesn't mean that they won't. It's not completely zero, but the, um, you know, the, but the chances, are, the, they are probably more like the, the next MySpace than they are the next Facebook. So, um, so that's the, you know, like there's a whole bunch of glue that will happen, a whole bunch of little things that'll happen here, but something that comes out of it will be completely different. And I don't, this is, um, it's just got enough rough edges that it probably isn't aerodynamic enough to, to get, you know, out of the uh, atmosphere. And John Preto. Well, the answer is no, move along. (laughs) I was saying that so nicely. I was, you know, and John just dropped the hammer, you know, like a button on it. <laughs> Boom. Question. Answer is no. There we go. Next question. Let's Next, next question is from Eric Hertz in Hartford, Connecticut. And Eric asks, if I had to choose between 4K and 10-bit video capture, which would you choose? Alex, what's say 100% you? 10-bit. So ah. 10-bit is going to give you more color depth. Uh, it's going to allow you to do HDR. It's going to allow you to you know stretch those colors out and make it much more vivid. We've done a lot of testing in this area. The chances of someone telling the difference between when, when you compare the likelihood for them telling the difference between 1080p and 4K, it's much less likely than telling the difference between SDR and HDR. So when you give them a lot more vibrant color, they're really going to notice it. Obviously, you want both if you can get it. But they're really going to notice the color uh, fidelity over the the resolution. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Chester Sweeney in Las Vegas, Nevada. And Chester asks, this is from the QR code, the end of, you know, and the end of Crimson and Clover, the song, on the vocal effect, there was a tremolo. Uh, oh, he's small, wondering, was that a tremolo? Was that a, a tremolo or a small fan <laughs> <laughs> or other? Go ahead, Jeffrey. Welcome back to 1968, fans. This is Tommy James and the Shondells. Huge hit for the era. And Jeffrey Powers, what say you? So what you do is you take your two fingers and you put it on your throat and you start talking <laughs> like this. And that, no, uh, so basically what Tommy James did was he took his Telefunken 250, uh, 251 through an Ampeg Gemini 2 guitar, uh, guitar amp. Now, that is one way to do it. Another way you can do it. A lot of people have speculated that it was a Leslie that, you know, put a microphone in front of a Leslie. Spinning, uh, spinning uh, a speaker will also do that. So there's several different ways to do it. But that, the Telefunken was the way that they did it. They had to do it in time with there. I'm just, there's a whole Wikipedia on Crimson and Clover. And if you want to go back to that era, enjoy that. I'd also listen to the song too, because it's a lovely little performance that was a huge hit back in the day. Let's move to the next question. Next question is from Dave Kaufman in Vancouver, British Columbia. And Dave asks, 
After being introduced to Pile Pro in headsets in office hours during COVID, I have like 12 of them now um, as, as almost disposable giveaways for anyone looking to have uh, better audio on Zoom. Countrymen's cost 30 times more. Why? <laughs> there are a lot of reasons, probably. Alex, what are your top ones? Turns out the electronics are complicated. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so the Countrymen's um, are a lot more expensive. You'll find that the, the fidelity of both the Countrymen's and the DPAs, which are things that we use, are, you know, just a much higher quality and much more reliable. Like we got into the habit, for instance, with the piles of ordering two or three to make sure that we had one that worked. So, you know, it was a little bit... Um, uh, their their ability to handle louder noise, uh, dynamic range, um, those things all take higher quality components and a more consistent quality control system than what you're going to get for fifteen dollars or thirty dollars um, out of um, the either the Polson or the Pile. It doesn't mean you can't use them, but you need to know that you might have to order a couple of them to do to make it actually work. Um, they were very very useful in our early days of of. Uh, of, of doing office hours and some of our early days and because they were available. Like one of the problems that we really had is we couldn't get them all. Um, but I wouldn't replace definitely if you listen to the two of them, they are, they tend to be much harsher uh, sound than what you get out of a countryman or out of a DPA. Um, and so that's, those are usually the, the challenges with those, but it's, they do make it better. I will say that the other thing that's happened is technology has gotten better where, you know, not for all things, but I would say that the, the latest generation MacBook Pro, um, the what the work that Apple's done generally, not always, but generally sounds better than a pile. So like it's the technology on some of the computers has actually gotten better where they're able to they're they're filtering out a lot more of that of this of the room information and so on and so forth. And and we're seeing that I, I'm not as I don't have as much experience with other platforms, but I can tell you on the on the Apple side that we have been using a couple of the of the MacBook Pros. And uh, when we see those, they're actually, we're surprised at how good they are. Are they as good as an MV7 or, or something higher quality? No. Um, but are they better than some of these little headset mics? Yeah, I actually think that generally they sound more full um, than some of these cheaper headset mics that um, now. Serge? Uh, just so people know, I use the new AirPods USB-C. So now that they have a USB C of that version, Apple released that, you can use it on any computer uh, with a USB C port and it's detected without the issue. And what's, you're talking about the AirPod, the AirPod The Pros. new AirPods. No, the one with the, the wire. AirPods, the little. AirPods. Oh, the well, AirPods, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry. So yeah, those little one. tiny microphones that hang, yeah, halfway down it, and that's the voice pickup. Yeah, they've been getting better and better. I will say there's another thing I think that's at work here, which is that when you're un, how do I put this uh, politely? I, the human being, your your ears and your brain works for achieving intelligibility, even when signals are not optimal. And I can't tell you the number of people who said, no, 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 I sound fine on this very inexpensive microphone. And, and in terms of people hearing what you're saying, given like not a noisy room and a bunch of other things, yes, intelligibility on even the least expensive of these has come a long way. The subtleties, though, are real. And if you listen critically and if it's part of your business and listen uh, you listen for nuance you do find differences you get more 
experienced at understanding the difference between mics. I use a Neum- uh, uh, Sennheiser MKH416 here on the show. When I'm doing my voiceovers, I use a, a Neumann uh, TLM 103. I can totally hear the difference in those. Now, that doesn't mean that either of those two mics or a Another mic is better than another, but they are different. They emphasize different things. I use them differently. I perform differently on the very sensitive Neumann than I perform on this microphone and certainly different than I performed on a Shure SM58 if I'm in front of a crowd on a PA system. You kind of learn the quality of the microphone and you use it differently to enhance its strengths, minimizes its weaknesses, sometimes in the case of the large diaphragm condensers that are really high quality, you have a lot more nuance available. So I'm more likely to whisper or shout or use the dynamics that that mic is capable of picking up. So those kind of differences are real. You very seldom get them on a $10 microphone. They're just not sensitive enough and they're not quiet enough. Their self noise is too high. You really can't get down and do those kind of subtle things that you can with more expensive microphones. Doesn't mean that the more expensive ones are always better. You have to match it to what you need. But there are differences, and you can hear them if you get used to it. So, all right, it's a large rant about microphones because I live and breathe by them often. So uh, let's go on to the next question. Next question is from um, uh, Matt Parker in Sarasota, Florida. And Matt asks, are there test patterns that are useful for determining gamma settings on a display or signal path, and how are they used? Alex. The most common test patterns that we use for a wide variety of things are, are basically what we call the Sarnoff uh, tests, the Sarnoff test sequences. And um, this, if you go to SRI.com, um, that is, SAR, you'll see SRI International. And across many, many industries that we work in, we get these signals. And these signals um, allow us to look at uh, color depth and uh, what, what form of HDR you're in and, and all kinds of other bits and pieces there. Um, they are not necessarily inexpensive if you want the hardware along with um, if you want the hardware uh, along with the signals it's like seven thousand dollars a year you know to, to, to have these and for but for broadcasters then that's not a necessarily a super expensive thing compared to all the other things and it's the only signals that I know of that you just push them into the system on one side and on the other side without having scopes or anything else you can visually look at what you're looking at and 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 figure out what's going on with your signal and whether it was compressed somewhere in the middle or or how it actually works and so um, I would check that check that out that might be the solution that you're looking for sri.com and those are the Sarnoff uh, test sequences let's go to the next question Next question is from Douglas Carmichael, and he asks, Access Analog offers remote access to analog audio processing in the cloud via robotic servos attached to actual hardware units. With plugins getting more and more realistic, is there uh, any value to something like that? Alex, what do you think? No. <laughs> there's not like there's not this is crazy i mean I, I, at some point i i, I just um i get it i mean i, I get i get you know folks want to be like the 70s and they want to have all this analog stuff but man it does not i am not buying that it that you have to run it through all this analog processing to get something that um is going to work <laughs> in the mp3 that everyone's going to listen to it on so anyway so the um uh so i i think i i am not um I think that this is going. Maybe they 
could build a little business out of this, but I, I don't know how, how many people are going to put up with it. It's going to be so quirky that uh, it's going to work some of the time, not all the time. It's not going to be fast enough. You're going to have latency issues. You're going to have all kinds of problems with it. Um, and and I and I I guess I I just feel like people have to give up. I, people want to do this. We get we get bands all the time that they they have this huge stack of analog processing that they that they just feel like they have to have. And I listen to their music, and I don't I don't. I don't, maybe my, my hearing isn't good enough. I just don't hear any difference from someone who just recorded into Pro Tools and, uh, you know, did what they needed to do to make it sound good. You know, like it, it it's, I don't, I'm not, yeah, that's all I got to say. Here's a brief analog. Uh, well, uh, Chris, you go first, then I'm going to finish with that brief analog story. It's an interesting comment, Alex. Uh, maybe your ears aren't whatever. Um, I'll say that I know that there was a point in my pre-career when I was just playing with audio where I firmly believed, just put a mic in front of it, then you just do this EQ thing, get it to sound the way you want it, and all good. Well, I'm not talking about EQ. I'm talking about well, a lot of processing that can be done. Understood, but, we're, but if we're talking about analog audio processing, or analog audio gear, the, I want to get that warmth, I want to get that analog, you know, like, ah. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I, I totally agree with you that you should just, you know, welcome 20, the 21st century with open arms and start using the tools of this millennia, not the last millennia. But I do think that there's, it's very possible that there, people are hearing things that I just don't hear. And I, the question is, is it a law of diminishing returns? And what's the point? Put a bunch of analog stuff in the cloud and then you have to digitize it? Come on. I do think people have kind of a sense memory of things. I, t t still today, I go back and the best sound I have ever heard, this is going to sound really weird. So I used to have a stereo system and I used to have Cost Pro 4A headphones and I really thought my system was fabulous, had a Marantz receiver, blah, 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 blah. I had to take a long bike ride into the radio station I was working at, probably an hour each way. And so I was in a Kmart or something like that and I saw this little Sanyo... A little radio with a little handle on the top, but it had a stereo headset you plugged into the side, and it had what seemed like a stethoscope earbuds thing. This is before any of the Walkman-type things. I put that in a backpack. I got on my bicycle, and I started to ride into work, and it was the most magnificent sound I had ever heard in my life. I, it just was inspiring. I loved that ride to work listening to my little backpack radio and my stethoscope headphones. Was it because the sound was actually honestly better? I don't think so. I think what it was was just me being at that moment in my life feeling freed and enjoying my ride and it was the whole thing. I was young, I was healthy, I was getting exercise, I was listening to the music that I loved on the radio station that I loved and the whole experience kind of formed this little myth in my head of this is fabulous and it's the first time I've ever heard anything this fabulous and I think it's all linked together. That's how I feel about sound sometimes. So if you listened on your old uh, cost headphones with an analog thing on your dual turntable and you loved that period in your life, you're going to associate that kind of sound with wonderfulness. 
Uh, there you go. Uh, that's my two cents worth. Alex? Yeah, just to bring it back to the to processing, the simulators for the processing is so good right now. I just don't know. I mean, unless you're doing something really high end, like you're going to go through a Neve or you're going to do something else, there may be some magical that, that actually does make a difference. But for almost all the things that you're looking at, you're going to be able to do it at least as well. And, and when you do it in the record pass, you're burning it into the system. And now, now we have to unprocess it if you change your mind. There you go. So let's move to the next question. Next question is from uh, Funsak Dorji in Dharmasala, uh, India. And Funsak asks, uh, hi, panelists, uh, hi, hi, panelists, uh, while shooting a three-person uh, panel discussion, is it advisable to use SuperSource when people are not looking at the camera? Jeffrey Powers. I'm going to say that it depends on the situation. Normally, if I had a three-person panel and I was shooting and I'm not focused on one person in particular, uh, I would do an overall shot. Uh, sometimes you can't do an overall shot. Sometimes one of them's the moderator and the moderator's stuck all the way over on the other side of the stage. So doing an uh, overall shot is just almost impossible. Sometimes you get in front of, you got panelists that are, in front of a big screen. And of course that's showing something white, which makes the shooting their faces almost impossible. So in, in cases like that, then something like a super source might be more needed for that. If I did anything super source, uh, especially if they're not looking at it and because uh, of separation, I would have one camera pointed on the, uh, on the uh, on the host, and then the other camera pointed on two of the guests. Uh, that way, it doesn't look as weird. But yeah, it it does have a little bit of a weirdness if you do it. But if that's the, if that's the only way that you can get the shot, then get the shot. Chris, I would say that the super source trope is uh, best suited when you have people that are not in the same room. If you have people coming in remotely, or you know, Zoom or satellite or you know, some other thing. People Now, I know that there are many instances in like broadcast news or cable news where they do have people in the same studio and they put them in the multi-box super source look, usually with somebody who is remote. Um, but it's, I, I'll just say this, uh, it's lazy. It, it, it's lazy because somebody wants to like, oh, I need to see everybody's reaction. If it's a panel, if it's people talking to each other, cut the show. Just cut the show. You have your wide shot so I can see, who, you know, so I don't get claustrophobic and have everything like big close. That's why That's why we have a, a you know, this, what do we, the gallery view. That's why we have the gallery view so you're not, you know, claustrophobic on all these faces all day long. You want to see everybody. But cut the show. Cut, cut the reaction. Cut the wide shot. Cut the close up. Follow you know, I joke about, you know, moving lips in every shot, but not always. Sometimes it's a reaction. Alex. Yeah, exactly what Chris said. I don't use super sources if people are all in the same room. I, you know, they, they use it a handful of times, but because they want to have each person have an ISO uh, that is going directly to them. But you shouldn't you shouldn't do that when you have a three person. There's nobody remote. If there's somebody remote, as Chris said, you you but but generally you're going to want you have a table here. You have. Your two people over here split your your moderator a little bit away. Then you have a single on that moderator. You have another one that's floating between the two or doing a two up, and you have one wide, and that wide is what your super source would have been. Um, and that's that's the way to do a three camera shoot on a three camera um, setup. And that's I would highly recommend it. Um, I would not. Uh, I would unless you have a remote 
person. I would not. I would not use a super source in a real in the real world environment. Let's get one more question in. Next question is from Douglas Carmichael, and Douglas asks, "What tools would you recommend for experimenting with AI-based audio and image manipulation?" I know iOS 17 has a personal voice, but are there standalone tools with similar capabilities? John Preto, can you just talk quick? I'll tell you, uh, Douglas, what what to what to look at right now. Midjourney, of course, is the best image generator. Although Adobe's got all of the tools that we've been using for years, and so if you're comfortable with the Adobe platform, like most of us are for years, compositing in Adobe with the generative fills and generative expand is the, it's hard to beat. So I would you can download all the Photoshop uh, betas; they're all up there. Midjourney and then Eleven Labs for audio. I don't know else you want to do an audio. Uh, Adobe's got new audio models coming out later this year. Excellent. Thank you so much. Don't forget, tomorrow on our show, I believe we're still doing the IBC coverage breakdown. So for those of you who watched our IBC coverage, uh, some of the team will be here. You can enjoy uh, their story of actually how we did what we did. If you watched any of the IBC coverage, our crew did a great job out there. It was absolutely fabulous. So that is coming up uh, here. And then Saturday, of course, regular question and answer and a marathon. We're going to have two hours of Q&A. And Sunday is always the little more philosophical show. So tune in for that as well. We are at the top of the hour, which means we're going to be flipping over to our second hour subject here in just a couple of seconds. Welcome back to our second hour. We are excited today. We're going to be talking about how um, interviews get done. And we've taken a look at this from the point of view of how an interviewer kind of conducts themselves and what are good ways to do that. Today, we're talking more on the technical side of things. Uh, we're going to be talking about some of the pieces of the puzzle that go into doing interviews. To start a little discussion thing, I've got just a couple of uh, phrases up here. Um, some things that I do, and this is just kind of how I approach it. The first thing I do is check the site. And when I say that, I'm checking the site for lighting, for windows. I'm looking for uh, power, what's happening over at the top of the room and lighting. What time of day is happening there? Is it the same as the event? I'm doing a survey to try to figure out whether there's sound issues and stuff like that. I really think that the, the site survey is one of the most important things for getting an interview right. Uh, I'm thinking about environmental noise, traffic, wind, air, uh, air traffic. Is, is Are you in a landing zone from an airport? I've run into that. Um, I'm also going through the like things like load-in and ramps and elevators and things like, what am I going to actually face when I get there. And I'm also thinking about how do I get out at the end, the loadout stop. Um, so that's one of the pieces. Uh, all of that has to do with planning your arrival and what you're going to face when you get there. What is the path from where you're going to park to where you're getting your equipment in there? Is it going to be easy? Do you have to bring extra uh, pads to make sure you don't bust up stuff on the way in and things like that? Um, the next thing I kind of think about after that is planning the positions that I'm going to be in. Where am I going to set up my camera? How am I going to stage the room? Where are the windows? Where are all the things that affect how my shoot is going to go. Once I get kind of this whole checklist done and I kind of know what's going on there, the next thing I try to do is think about the aesthetics of 
what I'm going to be doing. I want to stop for a minute. I've been doing technical stuff. Now I want to see, is there beauty somewhere in this location that I'm going to be shooting at? And should I change my original plans, even if I have to bring in that longer stinger to get power from one side of the room to the other? Because the place that I want to set up my camera requires that. Um, Then when all that technical stuff is done, you have to execute the actual interview. And that also means being a little flexible, I've found. Even if I set up in one place and I think I've gotten everything right, I've had the actual party that I'm interviewing come in and sit down and I realize, oh gosh, you know, they're, they've got a really long torso and I thought this shot was going to be good, but they're pushing into the bottom of the chandelier or something like that. So I have to change my shot, maybe guest by guest. So that's the execution part of it. And then the last thing I wanted to talk about is some of the extras that go into this, trying to figure out what are the things that I'm not thinking about? Uh, Do I want a little extra resolution so I can reframe them? Uh, Do I need, um, how am I going to deal with them in terms of their energy and engagement? What's my philosophy here to keep things popping for my audience? That's really usually... um, that's usually my final thing before I get ready to actually do the interview. And in that, those extras, particularly the engagement uh, piece of it, you know, am I an advocate for this person? Am I trying to draw them out? Am I trying to uh, reveal something? Is this going to be an emotional interview? I'm there often when I'm interviewing somebody as the advocate for the audience. So I have to stop for a moment and think, what are some of those pieces to this puzzle and how can I do a really good job? That's just a quick overview of some of the things I think about when I'm setting up. I mean, I've done a couple, three, four hundred uh, on-camera interviews, engaged them with people. And those are things that I didn't know in the beginning days, ways that I eventually came to think about engaging with an interviewee and making it all work. It does require a lot of technical steps. And there's a lot of circumstances where I've gone out and I had almost everything I needed, but I didn't bring a couple of little things that would have elevated that interview to the next level of professionalism. And as you capture more and more of that kind of data into your uh, practice, you find yourself getting better and better at this. All right, that's that's all I have for a little quick overview of kind of setting the stage for this. Everybody else, so we got a lot of people here who have done interviews. So I'm going to go to Chris Fenwick first to talk a little bit about what are the things that you find the most important about the interview. Yeah, I got to do an interview with somebody several years ago, and I learned a couple of things. No, I'm kidding. Um, so... It, what I do, when I have to interview somebody, there's basically two different things. I'm sure there's more, but in my mind, there's two main things. I'm either putting somebody on camera because I got a bunch of stuff I want him to say, want that person to say. Or I'm doing what in my mind I call an exploratory interview where I don't know what he's going to say. And I'm okay with that. There's, there's, a, there's a place for that. Um, but, they're, but you approach them differently. And if it's an exploratory interview, I take my time. I listen. I think a lot of times people don't actually listen. Feel free to do a follow-up question. Feel free to say, I don't understand what you meant. Could you explain that? Get, make it a real honest-to-goodness conversation. And you'll, and you'll have a post-nightmare, but you're going to have a lot of good stuff to, to cut together. But the other type of interview, and I do, you know, bad corporate video, so I do a lot of this. You know, we're going to put dude in front of the camera, and there's a bunch of buzzwords I need to get you to say. And one of the things that I do often is I, and I, 
I try to develop a certain amount of rapport. I know that's hard for Alex to believe, but because he thinks I'm always mean, but whatever. Uh, but I, I try and I try and develop a, a bit of rapport with the person. And one of the things that I'll do, and again, this is like a performative interview where I want the, there's much stuff I need you to say because we're going to cut it into this opening module or whatever. And I'll and I'll remind people, and this is this is really key. I'll say, hey, Bill. Thanks for doing this. Really appreciate your being here. I know that your time is busy. I want to let you know that I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions, and I might ask the same question over and over. Don't ever worry about that. It's not that you're doing a bad job, but we're looking for little subtleties and nuances, and actually, and sometimes we're actually moving cameras dur during an interview. But um, I'm just asking you to do it again because it gives me options when I'm in post, okay? So I don't want you to think that you're not doing a good job. Just every time I answer, ask you a question, just answer it like you've never heard it before, okay? And that helps people um, not, like, start to internalize, like, I thought I covered this, like, uh, what do I do, you know? And you can, you can actually see that way down on somebody to the point where you get, you know, five minutes into something, and their performances are totally jilted and just like, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? And I try and open that up to somebody in the beginning to just say, hey, look, I'm going to ask you the same questions over and over. Don't feel bad. You're doing it. I'm sure you're doing a great job. I just I'm looking for subtleties in post. And I'll and I'll also say and this is a little bit off topic, but there is a, a an interviewing technique that I used to do where I'd put somebody in a fairly white limbo scene and I would have my cameraman would shoot everything handheld. And he and I would stand straight on to you. And he would shoot from this side, wide, tight, loose. And then at the end of a statement, he'd walk around behind me. And he'd answer and he'd shoot from the other side. And I would we just would have this technique where I knew where he was and I'd just repeat questions and you get this neat look where you can you know cut between the different angles and then the other trick is is i would put a monitor on the floor behind the person because we're not shooting head to toe and then i could see what the camera guy would would have and sometimes i just give a little hand signal like you know change your shot and i'd answer the same question again but having that conversation excuse me having that conversation ahead of time and letting people know it's not you it's me i just I have to have options of this. Anyway, that's what I like to do. Cool. Alex? Yeah, and I'll, I'll jump, jump into a little bit more of a, probably a technical um, uh, look at this. Let me pull this up here real quickly. Sorry, I got the wrong way here. So there's a couple things from a... Just am I going to get the stylus out? Of course. Yeah, okay, I'm look, get the, the last out. time, that last hour, you pulled it out. I was like, got, got all excited. Oh, he's going to draw something. Free the I stylus. I did draw something. I drew, I drew a, a breakout. So, so there's a couple things. Um, there, you know, you have to think about what you're doing from a technical perspective in the sense that, like, do you have time to set up? So sometimes you're, get, you're grabbing a, a interview and you have very little time to get set up. You are in a location. You get access to this person. Here's an example of, um, this was in Zimbabwe. And so we went to, this is one of the, the, the great Mbira players um, in, in the history of Zimbabwe, uh, Simon Mashoko. 
and we get him in the afternoon after church. <laughs> that's when that's when he's available. That's when we can get down there. He's four hours away from where we were, and um, and so what we're looking at here is how do we get set up quickly? These are this is twenty over twenty years ago now. Um, so these are little PD one hundreds. Um, they are uh, we were able to set down. We were we talked to him for a little while and then we we're able to and, and start to shoot it and we didn't have as much time to look at those things. We are looking at basically you know where he's comfortable, where those things because one of the things you are looking for is comfort um, for the for the user as as much as you possibly can. Um, the uh, let me get to the next one here. Um, other things to think about. You also don't always have a, have a choice of where you're going. These were green screen uh, interviews uh, that we did. These were actually demos uh, for um, for a company, and this is in Amsterdam. And we had and we had to go in there, and we had an idea of the lighting that we wanted to do, uh, but we needed to you know just get the frame that we needed. We were backed almost all the way into the bathroom here to get the shot that we needed to, so that we we straightened that out. Um, the one thing you will notice is that I'm a big we're a big fan of big light sources. You'll see this over and over and over again. Um, you can play with sharp or hard light sources, but you will find that um, the uh, most average people look better with large light sources. Um, so, so large diffuse light sources are things things that we think about a lot. Um, one thing, this is about as small as we could get. You have to be very careful because we're doing, you know, a, we're we're shooting this green screen with these. We're, we're lighting that nice and evenly with these here. And I did do a lot of green screen work, so you'll see some green screen here, but you'll not all all of the stuff we're doing. Um, and then this is what we tend to refer to as a Jill Greenberg look. Um, and you'll see a couple uh, versions of this, which are two very widely. There's basically two side keys as, as opposed to a key and a fill. Um, and Jill Greenberg made that popular, I don't know, 15 years ago, and then we all started using it. Um, anyway, so, um, but um, that's, you know, getting this kind of soft area here. This is another version of that. So you'll see very large light sources on either side. Again, another Jill Greenberg version of this. And this is another hotel room. Um, this is in San Francisco. And then a, um, uh, then a green screen here. And again, the green screen is lit separately from the, from the, um, uh, from the main, from the main source here. Uh, one of the things that is, is really important is to, is to know again, what you're, in this case, we were interviewing 25 people over a two day period. So we really didn't, we, we did, it didn't make sense to bring, um, uh, some kind of uh, uh, double in to to make that happen, but for a lot of our higher end interviews, uh, we will actually bring a double in. So we'll have someone that if we're interviewing one person, we'll have a person that is the same height, um, same roughly the same uh, skin tone. Um, all of those things are all um, there so that so that we can get a sense of is this going to work in this scene. Um, it's actually not very expensive to do that in the grand scheme of an interview. Um, and you can obviously use a PA to do some of those things, but it, it does help there um, to make that actually happen. Um, here's another shot of this. Now, one of the things that we do a lot of are the Interatron. Um, so Interatron is a, I mean, this is a much larger system. I think this was in, um, I think we did this in, London. Um, the Interatron system is basically um, what we do, what you see here in office hours, which is that we're looking right at the camera. I have to admit that I kind of feel like looking off camera nowadays because of the COVID and because a lot of us are used to looking at Zoom. I kind of feel like it feels old. <laughs> like when, you're, when you're looking like this, when I'm, when I'm doing an interview like this, we do that because we used to have a producer sitting there. Um, what we prefer to do now is put the producer in the Interatron and not even have them in the room. We, we, we don't care where they are. In fact, we prefer them to be in some other state um, so that they really, it focuses the person right on that camera. It, it is a different look, 
Um, Errol Morris is the one that probably made it the most popular um, in that area. Um, but but the but we we kind of took it on about 15 years ago for a lot of our interviews, and uh, we became pretty you know addicted to it. Um, here is a you know here's a shot again of just kind of a very even lighting. This is more of a press lighting. Um, you'll see this hair light up here. You know that's going to give a little bit of highlight down here. One of the other things to look at here is that. Um, when we look at this, we look for as much as we possibly can, we look for depth, you know, so we want a lot of depth behind the person as best we can. So as we think about it from a technical perspective, um, how much, how much space can we create behind them? So when I'm looking at a space, I'm looking, I'm not looking at how to put them into a corner. I'm looking at how to put them in the front of the room and how do I have as much of that background there as I can. And I can control that with my lens length, but then I can open up that aperture and or close it down. The more depth you have. So if you look at this, the more depth you have back here, I can close my, my, um, what that allows for, this is a solid 20 feet. Um, so I think this is in DC. Um, this is a solid 20 feet. And what this allows for is I can close down to five, six or four or something like that. I don't have to have it wide open at 1.8. And I still have a nice soft background back here um, because I now have, um, uh, uh, because I'm not, uh, because I, don't, I have the distance here to have the soft background. If you put someone right up against the wall, you have to open it all the way up to soften that out. By closing it down a little bit, what, mean, what it means is that your depth of field gets larger on the actual person. So a little bit behind him up to a little bit in front of him, uh, he can move forward and back a little bit and he'll stay in focus um, Where if I have enough depth in the room. So a lot of times we're asking for large, in this case, I think we asked for like the presidential suite, um, which, which was useful because in this case it was a former president. Anyway, so, um, so the, uh, uh, but, but we have, um, so we have that back there. So that's something you want to think about. Um, we also, a lot of times for our interviews are going to use, we might use labs, but almost always we'll use shotguns. Then I don't think the shotgun was in final placement. Um, we'll take that shotgun and once we do the frame, so once we see whatever the frame is going to be here, we're going to lower this down until it goes into frame and then we're going to move it out just a little bit. So we want that thing to be as, as, um, as close to them as possible. Usually we aim right for the, the sternum. So that's going to be right. This is where we're trying to hit with that, with that shotgun mic. Um, um, and that seems to be, the, you know, for us the best. Oftentimes we'll have two of them. In this case, we had one, but oftentimes we'll have uh, two shotguns here as one is a primary and a backup. And often, and the final one oftentimes is another shotgun that's out of frame that goes up like this. This is if they lean forward, um, especially if we're going to do a recorded interview. Uh, sometimes they'll close these off a little bit and we'll hear a tonal change, but we'll get a better shot here and we can cut to it. So we have sometimes as many as three mics, depending on what we're doing, not so much for live, but for post-recording and so on and so forth. Now, these a lot of these are live hits or they're live to someone. Um, now, you'll see the other thing that we um, uh, we do is we always have something next to them where we can put stuff. So this is, in this case, this is an IFB. This was a live interview. Um, but we also have, you know, we'll tend to have water. Uh, we do pay attention. Um, a lot of our, we, we want to know whether they're right-handed or left-handed. So this is going to be always on their dominant arm. So if they're, if they're a right-handed person, that, that service table will always be on the right side so they can comfortably reach over and grab the things that they need. Um, and so those are some of the things to think about there. Also, you know, you want to think about the lights. Um, now you'll notice that I'll show another example where we don't have this control, but we'll close these off almost immediately. <laughs> like I don't want, I don't want external light in my room most of the time from a technical perspective. Um, the other thing is we oftentimes take either, we, we're now taking the uh, Aperture 7Cs and if the and when we do a walkthrough for this, we'll usually check the lights in a hotel. 
and find out if they're standard. Um, some of them have smaller systems, but we'll look if, if they're standard, we'll replace all the light bulbs in the room with, uh, with these apertures. And that gives us total control over the color of those lights. Rather than struggling with trying to figure out how to gel our lights or move things around or whatever, we just put in lights that we can control into all of these lights so that we can bring them up and down as needed um, as we're working. Um, so those are some of the things that we think about from a kind of a more, um, again, from a technical perspective um, here. Um, never forget the sandbags. <laughs> Sorry, we, we forget sandbags all the time. So those sandbags are, are a thing. Uh, here you can see a, kind of a double up here. Um, so these are a lot of times I said we like big sources and sometimes we'll, we'll gel, we'll put a pearl um, across both of these so that we can... Um, uh, uh, so that we can make it a big, nice, diffuse area there. Um, we have some some of our DPs will like to salt and pepper these. So these salt and peppering is 56 and 32s mixed, and it gives it kind of a, you know, and, and then when we play with the camera, we get kind of this mixed, uh, mixed lighting. I just keep them all at 56. Um, and so, again, this is more setting up for an Interatron for a, and for a hit here. Um, the uh, As we look at it from the other direction, obviously we're trying to figure out in a space this is the space we had here, um, but we're trying to figure out what are we going to frame behind them and how do you balance that frame? So he, in this case, these are balanced by this. There's just something that's of interest. There's weight on both sides. It's something that that we pay, um, we pay a lot of attention to as we kind of work through that. Here's just another wider shot of an interview. And this is, again, setting up for the Interatron. But you can see kind of the hair light here. You can see the larger sources here. And um, in this case of obviously, you know, very, very smooth green, there is never, if you're doing green, and this is, we're not talking about green in here, but, uh, but if you ever do green screen with someone seated for interview, there is zero, and I mean zero, zero, zero excuse for an uneven green screen or an underlit green screen. You should be ashamed of yourself if you do that, and you should probably give up your card. <laughs> like it is so easy to get this right that there is like, and and what happens is is that we we charge people twice as much if they give us the footage and make us key it by somebody else shooting it because everyone shoots it so badly. Um, on your on your luminance, this should be seventy percent behind you, and it should be perfectly even and thin all the way across. Again, if you're if you're doing a visual effects shot, there's a lot of reasons why that might not happen. But if someone's just sitting there not moving, there is no excuse not to have your green screen perfect, you know. And I used to do, uh, you know, we used to do a lot, a lot of footage in green screen. And it, it, you can get every hair and there's no reason not to. Um, now, the uh, this is when you don't have that control. And so you're really looking at it. So if you're doing, this is an interview outside in London. And, um, and what you're seeing here is that we still had to control a lot of the light. So we're trying to figure, you know, this is us figuring out, you know, how to, how to keep, you know, direct sunlight off of them. So this, we may flag them off. Sometimes this is a, um, this becomes a, um, we'll do a big diffusion up here to just diffuse it out. So, um, so that, that kind of breaks that out there. So, um, but this is a really hard shot because you, you know, this is going to be changing all the time. And so as you start to figure these things out, you have to, it's, it's, it's gorgeous. And you want to use the space if you're sure you want to show that you're in London, for instance. But, um, and you, and the other thing is, is if you're going to find a space that's in London, you better find something that people recognize or it's not worth it. <laughs> like all that work is not, is not worth it to go down that path. If you're not going to, um, if you're not going to show something that people are going to go, oh, I know where they are. So, um, so anyway, that, those are some of the, um, some technical things to look at. I might grab a couple other images, but um, I think that we probably, you know, jump out to questions.
Yeah, let's do that. Your question time. Uh, so let's get to the first one. Uh, first question is to Alex from Alexander Knight in Port Coquitlam, uh, British Columbia, Canada. And Alex asks, shipping remote kits to people that live in the U.S. from Canada is cost prohibitive. Are there drop shippers that you can use within another country that you can get lower costs? I've thought about um, sending Amazon gift cards and letting them buy the gear. Serge, start us off. So what I do myself is I have a small delivery company that is just outside of the border from me. So it's a 45 to an hour drive for me. And if I need to bring something to the U.S., I will take care of the border myself. If you use UPS or FedEx to take care of the border, they would charge up so much of the price that it's not a good way to do it. And then that delivery service in the U.S., is able to receive package for me and it's also able to ship package for me. So it's an easy way for me to have a US company based that will use US delivery service across the country with a cheap price and not having to barter with the border fee each time. Jeffrey. So yeah, there's a couple of services that you can get. Uh, one of them I interviewed back uh, during COVID and it was called Crew in a Box. And I'm not sure, I thought we did an office hours on that as well, but I, I couldn't find it. But Crew in a Box will uh, do, it's, it's higher end uh, uh, production gear. Uh, they dropped for uh, different things uh, uh, like the Emmys and, and the Grammys. So, and they'll have, they have white glove service with that. And you're able to uh, you're able to get that sh uh, shipped right to wherever you need to, and a local person would then set it up. And there was another one that I actually just interviewed at Infocom, called Remote Control Studios. And the person to talk to at Remote Control Studios is called Bill Davis. Interestingly enough. Uh oh, another one of us. There are too many of yeah. us. Uh, John Preto. Jeffrey said exactly what I said. We had this guy on Office Hours. I don't know if Alex, maybe Alex remembers, but there is a show on Office Hours specifically what this guy does. Ah, crew in a box. Okay, Alex. Yeah, we've had we've had them on in the past. Uh, you know, the hard part is for us has always been to be able to control the kit. Um, so we've gone through the trouble of sending those remote kits out, um, and uh, we do when we drop ship things, we just send them from Amazon. <laughs> so we we send them from Amazon to have them delivered. That in that case, you're really looking at a, you're not going to get them back, um, or you need to find somebody in the United States that can hold them for you and ship them for you later. Uh, what's what you can do, and what we have done in other countries is we have partners that will hold the gear for us. Uh, so we, when we haven't, we're not doing as many right now. But in with Pixelcore, we used to do, we used to have these kits in Europe and and in uh, Canada and the United States and Australia, and we had partners that were there locally that would hold on to a kit or two. Um, and then we would just simply send them shipping labels um, or we'd work with shippers to, to come pick them up at their house or we'd have them ship them and charge us for them. So there's a variety of different ways of managing that. Um, so, but we were, we had probably 20 kits in the field at the time. So we were constantly um, making sure that those remote kits were available. We even had ones that were just stationed in LA and New York so that we could just have them hand delivered if we needed to. So we pay someone to just go over and drop this off and that way we could manage it on the same day. Um, and so the, the hard part we've had in the past with uh, working with other folks folks is that if we partner with somebody that doesn't use the same gear, 90% of the time the gear that they're using is not as good as the gear that we would normally use. Um, and so uh, the way that we handle larger kits is mostly that we um, use uh, carnets. So we'll put the kit in a carnet um, and we'll send it. Um, oftentimes we'll send it to a 
a partner that's somewhere nearby. In fact, some people here in office hours have been the benefactors of that of that need um, and uh, would send it to someone nearby and then they can hand deliver it to the to our guests because oftentimes our guests are VIPs and they're not ready to accept a FedEx at some random time. So, so by sending it to someone nearby, we can deliver it. But as far as being really cost effective, you're either drop shipping it and letting it go or you're finding partners in, in those countries to... Um, to manage those kits for you and just simply, and it might be just a friend that has a little extra warehouse space and doesn't mind running to FedEx um, very often to to knock these out for you. Next question. Next question is from Douglas Carmichael. And Douglas asks, if you're interviewing a subject that is known to attract controversy or is related to a controversial topic, how should you moderate questions from the audience as to not cause distress in the interviewee? It's a delicate and interesting subject. Alex, give us no open mics. <laughs> so this is the source of how uh, Mukana was was created. Uh, so the original version uh, tw- 12 years ago was exactly designed to manage comments so that we could decide what comments we were going to feed to the um, to the person. So we, we were able to moderate all of those things. Usually we will eventually touch on the things that might distress them, but usually we wait until the end of the interview. So um, you may see those in other part, when we show the record, that might be in the middle of the interview, but oftentimes if we're going to pinch someone um, to ask something that we think is important, and, and most of the time I will admit, I'm usually part of PR or learning. So education and PR, I don't pinch anybody. Like I don't, I, I just don't ask those questions because that's not what I'm here for. I'm not trying, I'm not news, you know? And so, so I don't usually... Um, pinch at anyone. But if we think we are going to ask a question that might make uh, a, a someone uh, um, upset, we usually wait until the end of the show so that when they get upset or decide they're going to leave or or just become perturbed. You know, what happens is, is that your talent is really valuable. And, and if you turn them off or get them going the wrong direction at the beginning, some people like to do that. I, I, I don't find it to be... Um, you know, appropriate. So anyway, so, but, but I, I like to wait and, and ask a hard question near the end where they can become a perturbed, but it's not going to affect my entire interview. Yeah, I've done both kinds. I do a lot of PR stuff, but occasionally on the news side, I've had to get in there and it, it's a delicate dance. I mean, you know, we've all seen people walk off interviews because that question was answered or asked that they just don't want to have anything to do with. On the other hand, we've also seen a lot of criticism go to interviewers who do nothing but softball questions and don't hold someone who might be in a position of public responsibility to account for their behavior. So you have to, each individual interview is an individual thing on its own. And you have to go in understanding that. I will say it's often a mistake not to think about that until you go to do the interview. If if there's something ahead of time and you are working for clients, you need to know what their position on this is, what kind of interview they're expecting you to conduct. And if you don't, you're not doing your due diligence on the back end, and, just how I feel about it. And, and just a note, if you're a big news organization, you can do a lot of things. If you are a podcaster or you're getting someone getting off the ground and you are told by a press, the press relations these are out of bound topics. If you cross that, you will never work with that press relations again. Like that is a that is that is like the the that is the line. In case you're wondering, unless you have an enormous amount of of leverage, as soon as you cross a line that they told you not to cross, they just take you off the list. Like there's a lot of people that want to interview this person, and they'll just take you off the list and never talk, never call you again. <laughs> so, so just know that that's the case. So just be just be careful with that. Everyone wants to be that gotcha person, and oftentimes that's the end of your ability to get two people. So just know that. 
Yeah. It's a relationship business. If they don't trust you, they will never call you. It's just as simple as that. Uh, next question. Next question is from Guy Cochran in Seattle, Washington. And, uh, and Guy asks, uh, what are your thoughts on the prompter-to-prompter interview kits? I've never heard of that. So, Alex? Yeah, they look good. There's a, ICANN makes these, and these are designed for the Interatron, exactly what I was talking about earlier, where you um, can see the interviewee, and this is building the Interatron process all into a single unified kit. Um, so you can have two cameras on either side of the mirrors, and you can look eye to eye. Um, they are, you know, a little pricey, um, you know, for because I think that you could buy two individual 12-inch teleprompters from ICANN for about $1,500, and so these are adding a little bit to it. Um, they... Uh, so, so those are, you know, th- that's just something to think about as you, as you kind of build that out. But it, um, it, it, I think it's cool to have a case, set of cases that you can just set up. The only thing I would say is that we rarely want them in the same place um, nowadays. Now, I mean, if you have to put them in another room, and in this case, this makes sense, and you're just wiring them back and forth. Um, but what we really strongly prefer is to have the interview interviewer and the interviewee not be in the same building and just connect them. And and part of that's also so you don't have any echoing sound. Even if you listen to watch Errol Morris films, which I'm a big fan of, if you watch those films, um, you'll hear him in the background because he does this thing all in the same room where you can hear them. I don't like that. I like it to be either a speaker under the thing or I like it to be in their ear. So there's never any crossover and I never have the other person bleeding into the mic. So that's something to think about from a technical perspective. Important question coming next. Uh, Next question is from Dave Kaufman in Vancouver, British Columbia. And Dave asks, uh, interview interviews over zoom are tougher because of latency how do you gently wrap up a rambling answer to move on if you can figure this out 100 percent of the time i can make you a million bucks so uh alex what are your techniques for wrapping up a rambler yeah so so i think that um number one is you the the best way to wrap up a rambler is to do it in the in the in the edit (laughs) so so you can you know if you're doing a live if if you're doing a live one it makes a difference but remember that most of the interviews that you watch in um on on cnn or 60 minutes or whatever those things were three or four times as long as the interview itself uh you know than what you see on there the interview itself is much longer um than than what they actually use so cutting them down you kind of want to gather all that information and cut them down if you're in a live show and i learn a lot watching michael krasny what we do with gray matter um is that if you're doing a live show um oftentimes what you're looking for is for them to take a breath and then you're going to ask a a related question that takes them in another direction so you're gonna you're gonna just kind of clip them you know um when they when they when they pause for a second sometimes that's hard because there are some people that it's amazing how much they can say without taking a breath or or they can do it so quickly but you're waiting for that breath or you're waiting for them to think and then you're going to interrupt them with a new question that is going to to take them in another direction and oftentimes that's how you clip them one way or the other but if you're doing it for a record it doesn't really matter. You're going to cut it. You're, when they take that breath, you're going to cut away anyway. <laughs> so, so you're, um, and, and if you do it too often to someone, especially on the record, you may affect their performance. And that's what you try to avoid. Jeffrey Powers. Yeah. Uh, same thing with the, with the record, just let them ramble and let them, uh, cause there might be one 
point that they're going to say after that fact that's more important than anything that they've said, which you can edit all that out. I like to do what I call slide-in questions and slide-in comments. So they, they start talking and then you're just kind of going, oh yeah, like this time when you do this or, oh, that's that's interesting. How do you see it as this way? Things like that. Then you just kind of slide in like you're, you're continuing the conversation and helping them along and then uh, and they might get to the point where they feel a little bit, okay, I do have to finish that. Uh, or you can then take that sliding question and say, oh yeah, that's that's great. Just to really wrap it up, what are your thoughts on, on, on this part? So those types of questions will help keep the conversation going without making it feel like you're saying stop because you don't want to do that. Alex? Yeah, and, and overall... Zoom tends to actually, the, the delay actually helps. So it gives them a moment and it also, from, from an editing perspective as we record it, there's, it means that they're starting and there's no overlap or gap. So we actually prefer the, the Zoom delay most of the time for interviews. It actually makes it better. I, have you ever had a rambler on terrorists? I've had a couple of people who they'll always enter end a sentence like this. And that's what I meant to say. I'll also say <laughs> there's just literally not a nanosecond between the first thought and the second thought. And they're always trying to keep control of where the conversation is going. And those people are a small nightmare. Next question. Next question is from Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. And uh, Morgan asks, uh, what are your tips for uh, helping a remote interview guest improve their background for a Squadcast interview or Zoom? Imagine you log into a record and realize that you have uh, to do something um, to help them in the moment before pressing record. Alex. So we really try to do this a day before or two days before or a week before. We try to ask them to go and meet us where they're going to be. Like, let us know, let, let's, let's find a place for you to go. And sometimes they're walking around with their laptop and going, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And, and we go, okay, well, it'd be better if you, like, let's turn here and let's, let's put some books under your computer and let's move things around. And, and let's, what about, can, do you have a lamp somewhere that you can put over here? And so we'll work with them. We almost never want to do that before the show. So if we're doing the interview, we want to have a prep uh, of a half an hour and for all the Michael Krasny ones that you see there I mean like there's been maybe two out of a, out of many 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 that we haven't done that where um, you know Shannon or, or someone else talks to them and tries to figure out the best place for them to be you want to go through all that preferably the day before because it will jostle them around they will feel frustrated and maybe not angry but but tweaked you know when they finish and exhausted by by what we just went through by the day of the event they won't have to do that and they'll feel fine and they'll forget that they ever did that part and they'll just be glad that it looks and sounds good. So so getting it done the day before or a week before, the problem with the longer you go, the more chance they're going to decide to do something different, um, you know, by the time you get there or they decide they're going to be somewhere different. So the day before is usually the safest place to go, you know, in that in that area or two days before and try to really figure it out. And you're also listening for sound. You're listening for where their mic is. You're listening, looking for lighting. You, you want to try to do it if you can on the same time of day that you're going to do the interview so that you can see what the sunlight is. We've had ones where we did all the work with them and then it was dark <laughs> when we got there and we just hadn't we hadn't been conscious to them. 
There's also, for me, a little bit of the psychology of sitting down with the person I'm going to interview. Um, it, you can tell when people come in nervous. You can see there's a lot of little mannerisms, their breathing, their body position, their tension and rigidity. And if you can take a little bit of time in the in the beginning and really focus on calming down, uh, I, I use a lot of positive phraseology. You know, oh, I was just reading what you wrote the other day about this thing. It was really, I thought, a, a keen insight into that subject. You're, you're not really blowing smoke if you really think that that's, that that's true, but you want to give them f- reasons to feel positive about themselves, about their appearance. Oh, wow, the lighting is great for this. You're going to look fabulous in it. Just as an aside as you're moving on, and these things lower their temperature. It takes anxieties that they may have had coming into the interview situation, and you're trying to build that rapport that makes them feel like you're their ally and you're just trying to get a great interview out of them. And once they really understand that that's your intent, they can take a deep breath and relax into the interview and usually get much better results out of that. Alex? I will say I had a DP that would do a lot of our interviews and he was really good at doing it authentically, but he would come up to someone as they sat down and he'd just look at me and go, whoa, you, you look way better than you do on the photos they sent me, you know, like, like, and, and which may or may not be true, but he said it in such a way and every person would go, oh, oh thank you. Yeah, like, 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 you know, like, and, and. And then the first time he did it, I was like, I was like, oh, that, you know, they do, you know, by the fifth time I realized that's just what he does. Like that's, that's what he does. And he's, he's so good at it uh, that it, it, it really worked. There is the game behind the game and, and making people feel comfortable in what is an unnatural thing. I mean, you know, people who have been interviewed a ton, they're totally used to this and you don't have to do much because they know how to do this. But if you get somebody, particularly somebody who you really think, boy, they should have a great interview. They, they're, you know, they raised a ton for charity. Or they did something like that, but they're just never been in this circumstance. The lights and the sound and the people fiddling with their tie and all this thing really kind of brings them into themselves and trying to expand them back out so they can be more naturally themselves is a tremendously useful skill if you learn how to do it. Let's get to the next question. Next question is from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. And Roscoe asks, uh, is it better to keep the interviewee away from the set during the setup or will they be more relaxed by being around the set and the crew before the shoot? Ah, Alex. Almost 100% keep them away. Uh, most of the time, your, your crew in its entirety may not be the most um, uh, client-facing. Um, as you start to put those things together, their, their language may not be appropriate. Their frustrations might not be appropriate. There's a lot of things that we're trying to figure out. And oftentimes, it's just easier for us to just have them not there. Um, now, I will admit, for most of our situations, we never have them there. We're set up for hours. Usually, our goal is to be completely set up for the interview two hours before a VIP shows up. So we're there. We usually think it's going to take two hours to load in and be ready. So we we want to always be there four hours before. And that's assuming that we had a walkthrough. If you don't give me a walkthrough, I want to be there eight hours before to, to actually figure this out. So so the um, But we want to be there four hours before. We want to be twiddling our thumbs two hours before. And the reason for that is that the client's going to come in and not let you twiddle their thumbs. They're going to go, what about this? And can we put a little thing over here? And oh, I don't know about that lighting. And and there's all these things. What you don't want to be doing is trying to set up while the client is giving you feedback. You want to figure out how to have the client get their feedback into the shot. Um, and you want to be able to focus on that and not have it be this thing that builds up stress inside of you. You're trying to get the other things done. And they are now asking you for new things. They are going to ask for new things. They are a client. That's their job. And so, the, um, and so, that, so you want to figure out how you can get in. It's hard. You have to wrestle 
with the logistics because no one wants to give you four hours. And so um, so you you have to wrestle with that, but do that two weeks before. And same way we did two weeks before, just figure that out, figure out, keep on making that request. Talk about the fact that it may affect the quality of the final show, the final record, if you don't have that time and get that time so that you can do the best job you can. And And so I think that Usually for us, the guests comes. The guests come in. We whisk them away to hair and makeup. Um, we make sure that, and oftentimes again, we want to know what they like. What kind of do they want? Still or sparkling? Do they want? Um, you know, what kind of what temp? Do they like things cold or warm? In general, like we tend to keep our sets pretty cold. So if we the first thing we'll do when we walk in is set the thing to sixty four degrees. You know, as you know, so so that we're just pushing down because we know that our lights are going to pull that back up again. And so we'll tend to go get cold. But if we feel like especially if someone comes in and goes, Ooh, it's cold. Like that's a pretty common thing. If they say it's, it's really chilly. Um, oftentimes we'll turn that, let it warm up a little bit, but we don't want to warm up so much that they get shiny. So that's, those are the things that you're kind of worried about there, but we whisk them away to hair and makeup, have them all taken care of. We then have them, um, sit down and then there's a little, we try to have a little bit of a conversation, uh, with the, with the interviewer, um, and have them have a little bit of banter and, and get and get kind of into a zone there. Uh, then we do final looks and then we start the interview. You don't want to hang out too long either. And you definitely don't want them sitting there while you're trying to figure something out. If something's wrong, is if once they sit down and something breaks, send them back to green the green room and have them do whatever they're going to do and then bring them back out. Them watching you fiddle through it lowers confidence and confidence lowers their ability to be themselves. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from David Brady in New York, New York. And David asks, the human uh, sur- survey uh, does some of the most, uh, some of the best music interviews, digging deep into artists' history. Um, how does he get this info? I think that's the Canadian Nardwar, the human serviette. Uh, I have never seen one of his interviews, but I just looked him up. His name's John Ruskin. He's better known as Nardwar and a Canadian celebrity journalist and musician. I would, I'm would i going to now try to find him if he's that good an interviewer. That looks like it'd be somebody worth uh, paying a little bit of attention to. The, the note here says he digs deep into the artist's history. Um, I will say it's almost impossible to not have information follow you around in this day and age. There's so many tracking pieces and uh, articles written by people that you can now just pop into your computer and look for. But Alex, any strategies for getting background on people? Uh, research. I mean, the internet is yeah. a great, is a very powerful tool now and um, you can dig people out. We pay people sometimes. That's all they do is just sit there and research that person and we'll pay them, you know, X amount of dollars to spend a couple days just digging through internet. Sometimes, I mean, for bigger interviews, it's sometimes calling their friends and talking to them about it. Um, those are all things that we're trying to, because I got to tell you, if you do it wrong, then people get really upset. But if you do it right and you bring up something that just they have no idea that someone would know that's complimentary, you'll pick up a spark out of the out of the um, the artist that that you wouldn't normally get um, because they suddenly realize you really did your due diligence. I will say that that was one of the um, we just had an interview with Mike again. Michael Krasny is the master of digging into um, you know really having a lot of information, and he brought stuff up. and And one of the interviewers that probably gets interviewed three or four times a a day, you know, for things just said, this is the best interview of me that I've ever had. (laughs) Like, like you, like I, you know, he takes everybody for granted and he said, this was just, and so that research does make a huge difference. Absolutely. Let's get to the next question. Next question is from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. And Roscoe asks, how do you determine exactly where the interview's eyes will look? Is it slightly up or down or into the, into the eyes of the host? Um, The eyes uh, uh, of the over the top, 
um, eyes, should I, eyes be at over the shoulder angle uh, or directly into the lens? Yeah, this has been something for a long time. And, you know, sometimes you have some control over that. Sometimes you don't. I will say uh, before Alex weighs in on this, that maintaining eye contact with your interviewee, as opposed to looking down at your notes, uh, if you don't do that, you're almost always lost because they will always wander around and get disengaged. The, the, part of the art of interviewing is to not have to refer to your notes constantly. So you're breaking on eye contact and try to maintain eye contact with the person you're interviewing and use a lot of body language to let them let them know you're engaged. You, you know, that was a good point. Oh, interesting. Uh, you just want to keep engaged and then they'll stay engaged with you if that's the look you're going for. Alex, what are your thoughts? Yeah, one of the things that on some of the bigger interviews that we've done is the there's a series of producers in the back end that are um, feeding the next question. <laughs> so the interviewer has the interviewer might be the one that everyone knows is the interviewer, but they and they've worked with the producers on the back end. They've talked about what they want to cover. Um, they've looked at those things. Um, but what ends up happening during the show is because we're doing this interatron process, um, we have them. The next question comes up keyed over top of the person that we're looking at through the interatron. So we use an ATEM in between and we literally just key it in over top. That's the next question. They just they just ask the next question. What that allows is for that host to never look down. Exactly what Bill was talking about. It is a huge energy drop for a guest to have the host looking looking down if they, you know, um, for that. Professionals can handle that. And, um, and it's hard, it's easier. And you see this a lot with radio interviewers have a hard time with this because they're used to kind of digging through their notes to make that happen. But it does make a difference to be nodding and looking and figuring those things out. Now, if you're doing a record, the other thing that often happens and you're not doing it live, another thing that all often happens is you can just take your time. So they, they'll ask the question, the person will say it, and then you'll see the person look down and look at the next question and then ask it and then hold that, hold that um, there the whole time. I prefer to be. I prefer for people to be looking straight into the camera. So I, we really try to figure that out. Now, another thing to think about is the height of that camera. So one of the things that we try to do is we want to pull their. Uh, for most people, we want to pull their chin up a little bit because it looks nicer, you know. So you don't you see a little less of the, little less of the skin down here. So we pull that camera up so that when they're looking at it, they're we're pulling their chin away from their from their neck a little bit. Um, so that usually is just a little higher. Um, than um, uh, than than looking straight ahead, and it tends to make people look a little nicer. Not a lot. You don't want them to look up, but you want them to just just pull their head up out out a little bit as you do that. One thing that's really important to do those kinds of adjustments and those fine adjustments is making sure that you have a ped like um, ability uh, in that in your tripod. So one of the problems that you get into with the tripod is you know, with a regular tripod. Okay, you want to move that up good luck. I mean, you know, like you have all these legs and now you have to move all this stuff and there's all this stuff. So um, I, I think it's now a Sackler. It used to be an O'Connor. There's a thing called a hot pod. If you can get a hold of a hot pod, it is the golden, like I, it was one of those things I spent years doing interviews, probably a decade before someone showed me this. I had someone in news and he's like, why are you not using a hot pod? And I'm like, what is a hot pod? And it's a pneumatic um, center that goes up and down and it'll go up and down about two feet and it costs about $5,000 and you, you don't have to buy one. You can just rent them. There are, it is nice when you own a couple, <laughs> but anyway, so, um, but they go up and down. And what that means is for your teleprompter and your Teratron and everything else, the big old lens and everything else, 
right up. And it, and it's and now the only thing you have to be careful of is don't put your head over the top of it. Uh, we haven't had anybody do it, but we tell people every time because if you don't have any weight on it and you open it up, it's going to come out of there really fast. It's designed to push 50 pounds up. So, um, but it is a, it's, I think, I can't remember the Sackler O'Connor in the merger with um, Vitek. I think that they, I don't know who owns what or what the names are, but it's called a hot pod and it's got a center column that comes up and you can do this with PEDS, but this is a tripod that does it. And it really... It's life changing, <laughs> like from a, from getting that camera just right. There's so many times when people we weren't getting the, the perfect angle because moving that, and, and especially if you're interviewing lots of people. So I've got a lot of times we used to do these events at conferences where we have a room. You saw some of the pictures behind the scenes with green screen, and we're shooting people every 20 minutes. Like every 20 minutes, they're just rolling through for two days or three days, and it's like how how good is your product and what da 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 da. And having that the ability to move that up and down. Um, was just, it just changed everything. So something to think about. Next question. Next question is from Morgan Price in British Columbia. And Morgan asks, uh, for an in-person interview, uh, for in-person audio-only interviews, like NPR-style podcasts, what are the pros and cons of a one-mic setup, interview holds the mic, uh, or a multi-mic setup? Um, I've seen both recommended. Alex? Um, so the... If you're doing it for a record like NPR, NPR rarely does anything live, uh, you're, you probably can just let them both, both people have a mic um, to do that. Now, the advantage of, of one person doing it is that they, they have a little control. The disadvantage is they can get out of sync. Like people get into the interview and they stop going back and forth the way they need to. And so let's say you have a shotgun mic or, or something else. And, and a lot of times I think NPR in the field tends to use shotguns um, for those things. And so, and you have to be careful of like hand noise and everything else. So having them set up sometimes makes a big difference there. So you don't, you don't hear any of the hand noise, um, but going back and forth can, you know, give it this, it gives a certain energy. I prefer to have people just have their own mic. I'd prefer people not to hold their own mic if I can, because if, if you're not a professional, you'll get a lot of hand holding, um, hand handling noise um, that, that comes with that. So having it, having some little stand that you can do. I know NPR can be a little bit more run and gun than, than some of those things, um, but uh, they, they also have put those on stands as well. So um, the multi-mic setup, works really well just because it's more controllable, but sometimes it's not practical in the space that they're in. So that's the other thing to think about. Next question. Next question is from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. And Roscoe asks, is there anything that you would be willing to fix in post due to the constraints of shooting the interview outside of a studio? My answer is always everything. I mean, your responsibility is to get as close to the best interview look and sound that you can. So I'm willing, you know, if if uh, the camera, some uh, let's say lighting changed and, and all of a sudden somebody outside of your control opened a window and so you've got blue 5600 light infecting the side of that. If I can fix that, ameliorate the problem and, and do that in post, I will always do it. I mean, your goal is to get the best product you can out the door. So I'm willing to do anything. I try to set things up, and we've been talking about that the whole day today, so that there are no surprises. So I know exactly what I'm going to get. My lighting is right. My camera angle is right. Everything else is good. And so I can just roll and pay attention to the interview itself rather than the structure. But sometimes that's not possible. Alex, your thoughts? Yeah, the audio, obviously. Um, and then, uh, you know, we try not to fix anything major. So the things that we tend to take out is they put something... <laughs> 
Chris knows all about this. You have an interview and they have something in the background that you can't be there and then we have to track it out. <laughs> so so there can be like brand conflicts in the background that have to be solved. Um, and so those are those are things that that can come up for you. Uh, so fixing things in the background, that's part of why green screen looks nice, but it is hard to fix those well. So you have to be kind of careful of that. Um, the uh, little things like they might've had a little bit of, um, sometimes people will have a loose hair that came off and just sitting on something will track that out. Um, but we try not to do anything uh, too aggressive. Chris? Yeah, when you're when your client is monitoring a record, let them see the full frame. Not a por- not a portrait shot. They want to see everything because there's that's that's what ha- Alex is referring to something where people oh no I know made this really beautiful little uh frame, a little vertical. Yeah. Yeah. It's stuff. Gotta gotta it- look at the whole frame. Yeah. Stuff happens. And, you know, you hope you catch everything ahead of time. I think during the IBC coverage, I remember one interview where they were talking to one booth, but a lot of the frame was filled with a word on the booth wall across the way. And it was a total disconnect from me. I'm I'm thinking that that's the client that I'm listening to because of the big word in the shot. And so in those kind of circumstances, somebody has to make the call and go, no, you've got to move three feet to the right and pan left to get rid of that thing in the background, because that's all people are going to see is they're going to think you're talking for this brand and you're actually talking about a product from another brand. And so, you know, it's, it's a matter of sensitivity to understand what you're seeing and hearing and then correcting everything you can. And then somebody has to be in charge to the point of making the decision saying, no, we must move before we shoot this interview. We can't accept that. It's hard. And it's very hard live. Because yeah, and, and, the, and the thing, the thing that, uh, that also really helps on interviews is large monitors. So minimum 17 inch monitor. Um, I have, this is, uh, let's see here if I can pop this up really quickly here. Um, if you look at this is this is a, a shot that we did um, a little while ago. Uh, let's see. So you can see this here, and this is this is what we're looking at to make sure that we can kind of see. This is a seventeen inch monitor here. Um, so we're making this allows us. We can't decide. That we, we're not going to make any decisions about how this looks um, based on on this little monitor here. That gives us a sense of what we're doing, but we're always going to check it against a larger monitor to make sure that, you know, and that's one of the ways that we can um, manage some of those details. And you'll see us kind of staring at all the little corners and all the little bits and pieces um, before the actual show, um, you know, happens, or the actual record happens to try to minimize the number of times that it happens. But when you do it over Zoom, again, that can be much harder. I will very quickly in 15 seconds tell you my worst experience of interviewing is that it was a beautiful beige screen behind the woman in black dress with a red scarf. They pulled the screen at the very last second, leaving black drapes behind her. She, she just looked like a floating head. And it was a horrible disaster. And I couldn't have done anything about it because I didn't know they were going to move the screen. But, I, but I, I've always regretted that one. Let's go to the next question. I've got a couple more here. Uh, next question is from Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada. Uh, do people still shoot a nod cutaway anymore, uh, or is it just the jump cut replace? Has jump cut replaced this? Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot less rules now, Alex. What do you think? All the time, they, the nod yeah. is all the time. You don't if they do it well, you don't notice it. So I mean, you don't you don't see it happening. You just feel like it's just a, they're going back and forth, and there's might be a graphic that pops up, and then there's something else. And so when it's done well, you don't notice that they're papering over it. But many, I would say, at least half of the Chris, Chris can talk to this, but I think at least half of the edits that you see are cutting around things. You know, like they're moving around things that we want to shorten, extend, do something else to. Yeah. Yeah, all the time. Chris? 
Yeah, it's it's super interesting when you uh, fashion something together and you use, you know, cutaways, noddies, uh, angle changes, you know, camera cuts from a wide shot to a close-up, whatever. And then the client will come back and, they, and one of those patches is like, oh, we don't like that. And I'm like, well, you kind of need that one, you know? And, and they don't realize that that you've done work to a piece. What's super frustrating is as an and it it's mostly with people that you don't you don't have a long standing relationship with there's a lot of times where you look at a performance and you say i can clean up a lot of those stumbles i can clean up a lot of those uh performance issues but in order to do so i'm i'm fundamentally going to change the the feel of this piece because i am going to use the reaction shots and and all the tools and some clients just don't want that. And I'll say, we just did a piece, a, a series of pieces, a bunch of them, for a big client. And uh, I will say, uh, a, a much younger producer. And we shot it with two angles and stuff. And they go, oh, don't use that one. Oh, no, don't do that. Oh, but what about, oh, it's fine. Oh, that's fine. Just And, they, and it, very quickly, it was like, this is just... Five minutes of jump cuts, well, one and, shot, one angle, and that's what they wanted. And, and that one, that one shot was probably direct to camera, right? No, it was it off was camera. To the side. It was so we had like you know uh, this shot and this shot, you know, and yeah. this was medium and this was tight or whatever. I can't remember which was right. which. And th- they said, "Oh, we only want one camera," and we were which like, camera? "Well, they went for the closer angle." That was um, that was closer to straight on or, or closer for, to straight on. Yes, right. yes, yes. Um, and we said, "Oh no, we're just going to bring another camera." And they absolutely was like, "No, we don't want that." Yeah. Well, do you want us to reframe? No. And, they and this is this is directed a, us into just solid jump cuts. It's like, and, okay. and and this is the impact of things like TikTok, where people are looking. The, the next generation is used to people looking in the camera all the time, you know, and they're willing to put up with a jump cut so that they don't have to do that. And I have to say that after watching a fair amount of TikTok and YouTube, when I see people do these interviews where they're off to the side like this, it feels so weird. Like it is to me, it feels like such a weird shot now. Like it just feels old, you know, and, and, if, and, you're it's, not, and if you're not indoctrinated in the TikTok world, yeah. Uh, COVID has done the same thing. And when I look at somebody yeah. who's not looking at camera, not talking, you know, to mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Ah, it's... Yeah, I think, I think that side shot is on the its past. way out. Yeah, yeah. It's something that we all did and we did a lot of. And it's a, it, was a, it was a good fix, but I think that it doesn't really work anymore. It made sense. Sorry we to the. Uh, I'm going to dive in Go here because it's already the bottom of the hour and I want to wrap things pretty quickly. We got one more question. Let's get the last question in here real quick. Uh, a final question is from Douglas Carmichael. How do you keep your interview on track when the audience starts adding more and more deep questions? So that was an example of it. At some point, whoever's in charge of things just literally has to bigfoot it and say, we're getting close to time. We've got to move on. Alex, what are your techniques? Uh, you ask all the questions you need at the beginning, and then you let the audience run with it. Like that's the, I mean, you know, just get, get what you need out of it and then, and then let the audience, the audience oftentimes will ask much better questions than you will. Uh, we work on this all the time. The audience the larger the audience gets and the more questions you get, the better the questions will be if you can sift through them. We use McConaughey on the back end. And um, when we have 500 or 5,000, we've had up to 6,200 questions in 20 minutes. 
we're guaranteed to find better questions for the 10 that we need. We're guaranteed to have better questions than anything the moderator is going to think of because you're now, you know, leveraging the hive mind. There you go. Thank you all for watching. I, we appreciate when you come here every day. I hope you enjoyed this tomorrow. Remember, we're doing the IBC breakdown. So if you're interested in our IBC live coverage, we'll have a lot of things to talk about there and the crew in. Uh, Saturday, typical two hours of Q&A, and then Sunday, the introspection day. Thank you to everybody, our producers, the people who asked all the questions in this, our panelists. Uh, people show up every day. Crew and back end. There is an unseen army. You'll see the credits roll here. Please pay it attention as much as you can or if you have time because they do a lot of hard work to make this happen every day and we appreciate them magnificently. Uh, to the Lock Traversal today, we traveled 66,254 miles. That's 106,000 kilometers vaguely. That's uh, 524 million bananas for scale or 2.7 times around the earth. We traveled a long way to get your answers today and we will do it again tomorrow. Thank you for watching. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>